Welcome to X-Ray's annual Amplify Women programming. Today, we'll be having a conversation centering women in journalism with some of Portland's best writers. My name is Eden Dawn, and I'll be your host for today. You might know me for the last 11 years where I was the fashion editor, eventually senior editor at Portland Monthly Magazine, and I'm also the author of Portland Book of Dates. Joining me today on this illustrious panel, our fellow Portland Monthly people, editor-in-chief, and my former office mate, Fiona McCann. Hi. Hi, Fiona. And food editor, Catherine Chu Hamilton. Hello. From Eater Portland, we have Brooke Jackson Glidden. Hi, Brooke. Hi there. You can't see Brooke's great eyeshadow, but that exists. <laughs> we need you to know. And from Portland Mercury, news editor, Alex Zielinski. Hello. So between all of us, we have decades of writing experience, awards, accolades, maybe even a few positive tweets, <laughs> yet the world of journalism is one that is constantly changing. As I recently told someone, it feels like walking on a waterbed. Uh, I'd like to hear from each of you what the biggest changes are you've seen in the course of your career. Alex, do you want to go first? Yeah, I can start. Um, I was thinking back in, um, you know, to 2008, uh, when I started studying journalism in, um, in college, 2007, 2008, um, it was right when Twitter was becoming a thing. And I remember our journalism teacher at the time got us all to like get onto Twitter and was, you know, kind of ahead of the cur curve in a way. And no one else really understood what it was or what the purpose was. Um, and seeing the growth of just social media in general being a, um, a source of not only information, but news and reporting, that's like where people go to get news now, um, has been wild. And there's no way to, to have predicted that when um, I first got into journalism. And not only when it comes to, you know, who's reading your story, how to share your story, but that's kind of the number one platform, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, to share, share news media in general, you know, people aren't picking up uh, publications as much as they are just scrolling through their phones. And so the, I'd say the platform, uh, the medium of news um, certainly is the most uh, kind of revolutionary change since I started journalism. Yeah. Brooke, I see you nodding a lot. Yeah. You know, I think um, the concept of access really seems to have a direct correlation also with media trust, which is something that came to mind immediately for me when I heard this question. So, you know, when people shifted away from starting at a homepage or a print product, and started shifting to social, I think that certain figureheads became kind of the voices for news. We People started really connecting specifically with certain journalists as opposed to publications, which is something that I've learned and noticed in my career. Um, that is uh, sort of fascinating, right? Because it means that in certain ways, journalists have more of their own standing. Um, it allows like freelance journalists, I think a little bit more um, leeway and uh, getting specific pitches because they have their own sort of audiences built in. Um, but I also think 
that it creates these sort of parasocial relationships that readers have with um, specific journalists and uh, a certain entitlement to certain people's time. I'm sure a lot of other women here uh, might be familiar with this. Um, and I also do think that because people are not thinking about the ways that information reaches them in a social media space. They consider certain things undercovered and certain things overcovered because of how they're exposed to it, because of how algorithms are built, because of who they follow, stuff like that. So I think it created sort of a challenging media market. Um, I think my, my job and sort of the audience landscape has been, um, it has become maybe a little bit more hostile than it was when I first started. But it also, I think, allows for a new wave of independent journalism, which I think is very exciting. Mm -hmm. Fiona? Yeah, I was just going to say that's sort of um, something maybe a part of social media's sort of emergence has been how it's sort of democratized media in certain respects. So before there was a huge amount of gatekeeping um, and in certain places, media was absolutely controlled. And so it allowed people to report directly about their experiences in a, in a new way. And in so many situations, that's been really advantageous mm -hmm. um, and really a positive development. And when people decry social media and how it's taken over this that, and the other, you, you know, I'll think about some of the social movements um, and things that we were able to hear reports from through social media that we wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Um, in, and also the people who have access to journalism has you know, really broadened, I think, as a result of that too, because these are publishing platforms and you don't no longer necessarily need the same kind of liter like literal door pass to get in, which is has a lot of positive along with so many of the negatives that people have already discussed. It's funny when you ask that question, I suddenly feel like such a dinosaur, what has changed? Cause I remember working in like a newspaper where the printing presses rolled over my head. And um, like I, we didn't, we, I worked in the Irish times back in the previous century and they did not have, yeah, I know, right? The before, before times. And they didn't have, um, they, they were considered sort of very avant-garde because they had a, a digital presence at all. Um, and so that has changed so dramatically, just how digital has taken over has been just such a shift, not just in how we consume news, but how we design it, what it looks like physically, what that means, um, what, how that changes the audience. Um, it's been kind of fascinating. I mean, if there's anything I've learned in journalism is that it keeps changing. This is not an, indus an industry to be in if you want to stay the same the whole way along. Mm -mm. Yeah, I never realized that being nimble and flexible would be such an important piece of, of being a journalist because the, who knows what the next platform is going to be. <laughs> Yeah. TikTok, we're all going to be doing our dances while we... Right. <laughs> I do think that's kind of a nice thing about the shift toward more digital journalism, though, because I think, you know, previously when I was working at a newspaper, it's like, okay, you have the same word count every week, you have space for one or two photos every week, mm -hmm. um, and now it's like, you know, we can do a whole slideshow, we could do a video to go along with it, we can do, like, podcasts, there's so many more um, opportunities to tell stories in different ways and use different mediums to uh, tell a story way we want to and just be creative about different storytelling formats. Yeah, no, that's very true. And the amount of time um, 
you know, in, in my tenure at Portland Monthly over 11 years and, and for a few months at the Mercury before that, it, we started a blog, you know, they were like, Eden, we want you to start this thing called a blog to talk about fashion. Now, of course, we would never say the term blog. Now we are digital articles to sound fancy, but it was a novel idea a little bit like it, it and the amount of things that have changed in that quickly of a time period you know when you can look to what journalism and newspaper was like for the half century before our time you know things were pretty steady there was improvements to the printing press etc etc but we were all have been journalists in this rapid, rapid change. And I wanna go back to something that Brooke said that I think was really interesting. And this idea that you kind of develop these parasocial relationships with journalists that you follow. And I have both, um, I have experienced that maybe from both ends a little bit, right? It's like you find journalists you look up to on Twitter or people in, especially in the madness of the world that you're like, okay, I kind of trust this person's viewpoint. I'm going to keep looking at them. Um, but then also the, the stress that causes when you realize that, you know, being local journalists, that the community is looking at, at you for what you're putting up. And sometimes I take that very seriously and, and trying to disseminate information. And sometimes I just want to show off how cute my cats are, you know, and it feels like this weird thing of being like, I can't, I just Instagram a picture of my chubby cats and, and they are so chubby and so cute. And I want people to see them, but also I want to be taken seriously for when we have, you know, information to share, when the mask mandate keeps changing, all this stuff. So how, how does that affect you? Or do you, do you participate in social media as a journalist and as a human, or do you just choose one or the other? Yeah, I think um, I, it's, it's so fascinating sort of off of the last question. It seems like it feels very clear that we all see the, the real joys and excitement that's born out of the social media age as journalists in terms of how we can tell our stories and, and that platform and also sort of the complications of that. So I definitely share my personal life on Instagram, on Twitter. I, I talk about my partner. I you know show what I'm cooking, stuff like that. Um, and I use it as sort of a journalism space and I share my stories that way. Um, you know, as I've sort of studied this, especially, you know, I'm uh, definitely uh, on the younger side as a journalist. So, you know, we were studying sort of like how to position ourselves uh, in the social media space when we were in college. Um, so I definitely, you know, I, I could tell that um, people want to have that intimacy um, with the people who are, you know, journalists and also storytellers in their, in their communities. So, you know, they, I do think that showing who I am and also um, allowing for that vulnerability, I hope, gives people an understanding that there are humans behind the people who are telling these stories. I think that that is super crucial. Um, but I, I have noticed that, you know, uh, the, the downside of that is recognizing that Certain people now, you know, might stop my boyfriend on the street because they've seen his face before. There have been people who, you know, I've never met who are asking me for my address because they want to pop by. You know, there's this new form of intimacy that people you know, think they have with, with people that they care about um, from a, you know, media standpoint. Um, so, you know, I do think that 
sharing both on your social channels is super important, but also keeping those spaces, you know, like private Instagram accounts and, you know, group chats and things that are really just for you and, and your loved ones. I, I actually think that's super important to have that balance. Catherine, what do you think? Um, I, I'm kind of in a similar boat. I mean, I guess when I first started uh, doing food writing, it was a little bit different because I was technically a food critic. And so I was following the traditional, you know, don't put pictures of yourself on your profiles. And, um, you know, when you interview somebody, try to call them on the phone instead of meeting them in person. Um, and so I really wasn't sharing anything about myself at all because I didn't want people to know who I was for my job. Mm. Um, and now it's different because uh, I'm not technically a food critic anymore. And so I don't have to be totally anonymous about that. Um, and I think for the most part, it's been really nice, honestly. I think, um, you know, I don't share all of my, you know, the, the things I would share with my friends on my public facing Instagram, but um, I definitely give snippets of my life and kind of um, also use it as a platform for other community related things I'm interested in, you know, whether it's um, different social justice issues or like different fundraisers that are happening. Um, I got in really into like a BIPOC biking group through Instagram. So I share about that sometimes. Um, and I think it's helped me um, when I do talk to people for interviews, I think it's helped people open up a bit more because they do have a sense of who I am um, and what my interests are. And um, I don't know, just my general like place, not just as a writer, but as a community member that I think makes people more willing to talk and uh, be vulnerable, which makes for better stories in the end. Mm -hmm. Alex, what about you? Yeah, I, I really relate with what Brooke said about, um, you know, trying to, to appear human um, and not just like a robot that writes news. Um, actually someone who has like interests in being dynamic and, um, you know, has a sense of humor and watches certain TV shows. And, um, but I also have a hard time meshing that with um, trying to appear as someone who is somewhat objective and not like biased towards a certain um, you know, uh, uh, you know, even like when it comes to supporting certain, um, you know, nonprofits or spending time at a different restaurant or whatever, I, I feel sometimes cautious about sharing too much of my personal, um, personal life and personal side of things, because I don't want it to get, you know, pulled up later in some conversation where it's like, well, I saw you were, you know, donating to that thing, or you were, um, you know, hanging out with, that one person who's part of that group or whatever. Um, so I have, uh, you know, my Twitter is work. Um, my Instagram is entirely um, private and just like my own life. Um, and my Facebook is kind of that weird in between area where it, um, a lot of people, it's like the new phone book. I feel like a lot of, that's like how I can find people a lot of times if I need to get in touch with someone um, in the community. And a lot of people just seem to reach out to me um, uh, expecting that that is kind of a form of, of email sometimes in that way. Uh, so I've, I've kept it kind of public and just been careful about what I post on there. Um, but yeah, I feel like I, I walk a fine line between how much I want to share about who I am in my personal life and, um, you know, where my family lives and, um, who my friends are, you know, I'm not, 
um, a lot of my close friends aren't, aren't journalists. And so I, and I don't want them to get wrapped up into this weird bubble we call, you know, social media, um, journalism, Twitter. Uh, and so it's hard because I do want to be relatable and feel like a normal person. And, you know, I try to do that as much as I can with just my tone and, um, and, and just when I speak with people, you know, but a lot of times because I have, um, you know, a picture of myself on the internet and on social media, people come up to me um, and in person recognize me when I'm out at a community event or, you know, a protest or something, um, which for a while became, was startling, um, but it it's never come off in like a, you know, a, um, with any kind of malice. It's always people just being like, oh, hey, you're that person I follow on the internet. Um, like, great to put a face to a name, you know, and I, I like, I think it's really important to make that per, like in, in-person connection. And mm. I think almost that interaction is the best way to humanize who you are to, to, to readers and other folks say like, yeah, sure. I'm just, you know, made up person you follow on the internet, but I'm also a real human being. And, um, you know, sometimes I stumble when I speak and, uh, um, and, you know, I ride my bike and sometimes I look completely drenched from rain, you know, I'm just like a normal human. So, yeah. Fiona, what about you? I think that you and I are a little bit different than the rest of the panel as, as the, as the eldest states women <laughs> that we Twitter and things didn't exist when we were in college. Like this is, this is all stuff that happened when we were already writing and on the go. And we're kind of like, what, what is this thing? I know. And I was, I'm kind of grateful in a way, personally, that, you know, I got to understand what publishing is and the longevity of everything that you put out there and the impact of publishing before I went on social media, because I think it did make me more cautious, you know, because I knew that when you put something in print, as we called it back in the olden days, it was out there for people to see and react to, and you had to be clear and accurate and make sure. And, and then, so I didn't have that sort of like hot button temptation with social media in the same way. I was cautious and more aware as a result because sort of publishing came first and then these new publishing platforms came after. And I think I have retained a lot of that caution, to be honest. I really, like um, Alex just said, I'm really aware of how it will impact the stories that I can tell in terms of, you know, how I, whether I'm perceived as objective, like, can I write about politics? If my politics become clear, can I, I can, you know, and there have been times where you could be sued or your story could be completely undermined because there would be an argument that you have a bias and not just a bias. Everybody obviously understands that we are, we have our own biases, but like a public bias is a very different thing and a published bias. And even if that medium is Twitter or Instagram, that's, still part of the public record once you put it out there. So I think I have a certain amount of caution and I, I don't know how many of you all on the panel have kids, but I'm also very careful about my kids, right? So I want to be public about the fact that I am a mother um, and that that's the truth about me. However, I don't, I don't put my children's faces on public social media. Other people do. And I, that totally respect everybody's choice, but that's a decision that I've made. Um, and also in part to do with 
my daughter's insistence that I don't put her anywhere in social media. She's very clear about it. Um, but uh, I do think I, I have a really strong respect for what it means to publish something that was sort of inculcated before these mediums became available. However, I do want to, I keep saying however, however, I do want to say that the humanization of reporters and everybody really is important. And I feel particularly strongly about our embrace of it in this pandemic world. Sorry, I have something caught in my throat. I'm not moved to tears, although it might seem so. Um, Not uh, yet, not yet, but we're getting there. Yeah, wait till we get to the crying bit. I'll be first. Um, (laughs) No, but I, I feel like with, uh, the pandemic and moving into the digital space, our professional personal lines have blurred even more. You know, very few of us can have have a sort of sterile office environment to work in anymore. You know, I could have a child leap across or a cat or a dog or, you know, anything could happen. And so now, even whether I like it or not, as I am in professional interviews now, you'll, you're seeing into my home and you're seeing my... You know, and even if I blur my background, there'll probably be a child yelling at some stage or there'll be a dog barking. Um, and, and part of me does want to embrace that. I think for a long time, especially as a, a, a woman, I had to, I felt that it was incumbent on me to sort of keep those things very separate. Um, and in part, that was because women were sometimes penalized, right, for some of those things, for having a family life or, yeah. you know, having boundaries and stuff. Um, and so I am very conscious. And I think I've just totally strayed from your point, Eden. So I'll wrap it up. But I am conscious of the fact that we do. I don't want to deny my humanity or my existence in other spheres beyond my professional sphere, I guess. No, I actually want to, I want to lean into that because I think that, you know, as a panel of women journalists, I want to talk about how we feel perceived in that role. You know, specifically for me, being somebody who mainly talked about a lifestyle subject fashion, I always had this interesting feedback of, of very much feeling like because I wrote about lifestyle that I wasn't a real journalist or my skills were overlooked as a journalist, right? And then when I would use those exact same skills to interview a congresswoman or a senator, all of a sudden I would get this praise about what a great journalist I was or a great writer. And for me, it was so interesting because my journalistic process was the exact same, right? You're still just like pitching, doing the interview, you know, looking for the best quotes, writing it up, same frame of ethics, but the, the view, the lens through which that was seen was very different. And I think particularly, you know, um, often women do a lot of the lifestyle journalism. That's not a hard rule, but it's, you know, I have not met as many men who write about fashion, for example. And I'm curious what your experiences are in that, in that way of feeling perceived in your role. Um, cause some of you cover lifestyle, some of you cover news. Um, what do you, Catherine, how about you? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think, one thing where I think gender really does play into it a lot is that, you know, I'll write a story saying, you know, here are the five best coffee shops or something like that. And um, a lot of times the people who comment on these stories will be men who say, you forgot this. Um, and I'm like, I actually didn't forget that. I went there. I didn't think it was good enough. So I didn't put it on the list. Um, I think that with 
so-called lifestyle subjects. Um, people think that they, um, you know, can say you're doing your job wrong, which I don't think would happen as often in other fields. Um, and it feels very gendered as well because, um, I don't know, I look at the response to, um, you know, like I grew up in the Bay Area. So a previous food critic was this man named Michael Bauer who had been there for decades. And I don't feel like people really questioned him that much, honestly. Um, they kind of just took his word and were like, oh, this restaurant was on Michael Bauer's best list. So he must be great. Um, and then, you know, their current food critic is a woman um, who is on the younger side and people always tear apart her recommendations, um, even though she's doing the same job. Um, so I think, yeah, because it's, because it's lifestyle, because it's, um, because I'm a woman, I think that people do question a lot of my work sometimes. And that's frustrating. Brooke is nodding vigorously. <laughs> yeah, I sure am. Um, I, so deeply feel this in so many ways. I think, um, you know, I work for a publication that is exclusively online. Um, I'm a younger woman, I'm a queer woman. Um, and it is so hard to kind of gauge whether you feel like the response that you're getting is coming from a place of sexism. But there have been certain moments where that feel very palpable. Um, in terms of the ways that other, you know, male journalists in this field are sort of taken for their word, especially in the spectrum of like service, um, as Catherine said, like roundups and um, pieces like that. Um, I remember in particular this one experience where um, I had updated like our pizza map or something and a chef in town who was listed on the map, went out of his way to sort of publicly berate me for not including other places on the map. And Michael Russell, who is the restaurant critic and reporter for the Oregonian, who I do consider a really great ally, kind of came in and said, you know, actually I would say that those restaurants aren't necessarily that great anymore. And he goes, oh, I never thought of it that way. I must, I guess I'll have to go back. And I'm like, huh, interesting. <laughs> oh. so I've had several experiences along those lines where it's very clear that like, if specific men in this field can confirm my perspective on something, then it's considered valid. Um, and that's incredibly frustrating as somebody who has I mean, I've wanted to be a food journalist since I was six. I have thought exclusively about this for years and to be sort of dismissed because of my age, because of my tenure, because of my sex, I don't know, but it, it feels incredibly frustrating, especially when it's such a daily occurrence and people, something I just wanna to touch on that I, I, I just feel like I'm trying to be more candid about right now is that people feel beyond just, you know, constant critique that I'm getting in my inbox and in my DMs, um, people go out of their ways to use, um, you know, to tell me to harm myself, to, um, use sexually explicit language, um, about my ability to do my job, um, and being so consistently told from such a, uh, using language that is so gendered and so violent, um, is, it, it's just, um, it's just brutal. And I think that 
I don't see other men in this field talking about that experience the way that I feel like I'm experiencing it. Mm -hmm. A, I'm so sorry that happens. And B, that is something that I think the women here, women journalists have experienced for so long. And it's at what point, um, it, it is difficult ever, I think, to understand what drives humans to do their actions. Obviously, if we could have figured that out, we would all be uh, brilliant geniuses, but it, it, it is an increase. The, the violence and the anger towards, towards journalists rhetoric seems to be, at least in my, my career, feels at an all-time high, for sure. Um, and it's inexcusable. And I do, I, I don't see men dealing with it as much. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Alex, I'm interested in your perspective on this because you are a news editor, which I feel like, I mean, though at any kind of small publication, you cover a wide variety of topics, but how, how does this hit you? Yeah, I was going to jump in. Um, uh, when Catherine was mentioning kind of the difference between, you know, women and men in, um, food criticism. I mean, I think it's the same in writing about politics and writing about news and feeling like, or in writing, like you are an authority in some way. Um, you know, I came in to be the Mercury's news editor after a long string of male news editors. And that felt, um, it, you know, it was an unsaid thing that hung over me. Um, and I was compared to my predecessors for like at least two years by people I'd interviewed saying, oh, well, you know, so-and-so used to, you know, act this way and ask these questions. And, um, and, and I feel like that, and at, at the same time, um, you know, the majority of other, a, a lot of harder hitter kind of city hall reporters and news reporters were also men in different um, publications. And, um, and there was a feeling like kind of going in that I, um, you know, that I wasn't, I didn't really have the authority. Well, cause I was coming, you know, I was moving to Portland from another place. Um, I had to kind of prove myself in some way that, um, you know, I saw a lot of male journalists come in from, from out of town and start hitting the ground running and being trusted and, and accepted. I think not only by peers, but also like the folks we interview, you know, like, um, city commissioners and, um, and, and people in authority positions being a new, a new female journalist in town and, um, and trying to, to, um, you know, make sure that I'm asking the right questions and I have the right history. And, and I feel like, you know, there's always that, you know, when you're at a new job, you do tons of work to make sure you, you know, the background and the context and everything of these issues. But I felt that following um, kind of the men before me that I really needed to, uh, to bring extra to the table to prove that I was, you know, up to snuff in that way. It also is tricky having a um, androgynous name. Um, a lot of times in emails, I had to be like, I'll be like, if you're meeting someone in person, say, I'll be the, I'll be the woman, <laughs> um, you know, wearing the hat or something. <laughs> um, and, uh, one thing that I, that I did enjoy, I, or I do enjoy kind of about, um, that is that a lot of times if I'm a new reporter to town or people don't follow me on social media, 
they do assume that I'm a man uh, for a while if I'm writing about a news and politics and um, show surprise when they're like, oh, I thought you were a, a man, you know, uh, in a way that weirdly makes me feel good because it's almost like, oh, I tricked them, you know, by being like smart or something, <laughs> um, which is, of course, like part of the whole complex. Um, but it's interesting in some ways seeing that when um, before Portland, I was in uh uh, I wrote a lot about, I was in Texas and I wrote a lot about abortion law. Um, and also previously in, in DC, I did that. And, um, and I found specifically that when my female colleagues, my other female colleagues wrote about those issues, they did a lot more um, hate mail and kind of vitriol than, than I did until we put, until we put our images on the website. Um, and then it would be a picture of who I was next to what I was writing. And, and I, I made that partnership kind of later in the process, realizing like, oh, they, they see I'm a woman now and they see I'm writing about these things um, mm -hmm. about like women's issues, you know? And so <laughs> suddenly, um, yeah, and then I'd get those horrible emails and threats and flooding my inbox, but yeah, it's certainly something I think about a lot um, in the context of, you know, politics and kind of when you think about, you know, news reporters, um, you think about, you know, uh, some old man with like a fedora and a press card in his hat and, um, <laughs> yeah, having like unhealthy drinking habits and, um, and it's been glorified in a way that, um, it's hard to fill those shoes sometimes in people's minds. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want to wear a fedora. Seriously. Yeah. So. Yeah. I do, so feel though, I do feel though, like, I just want to call out the kind of bullshit dichotomy between like lifestyle and news as if, mm -hmm. you know, as if I can't be both interested in lipstick and politics or, you know, I just sometimes that whole like false binary just really pisses me off. I've worked in hard news and I've worked in lifestyle and, you know, I've tried to do that work with equal intelligence and brought the same rigor to both. And I don't think it has to be a one versus the other. And so this whole idea that there's like this sort of patriarchal news domain or whatever, and then there's like the women's stuff is just that that just gives me a pain in the face, to be frank. <laughs> um, and yeah, then I, I agree. And the, the thing about, I think, if you identify as a local journalist, which I always did, first and foremost, I thought of myself as a community journalist, is a community is made up of all of those people and all of those, you know, like Portland is not Portland without our food scene, our music scene, our fashion scene, our, you know, and also our politics and our infrastructure and our history and every single bit of that is what makes us up as a city. So to be a good city journalist, it means being able to have some grasp and understanding of all of those things. And I actually think it's a, a very, you know, adept journalist to be able to kind of walk amongst all of those. Uh, and there's news involved in all of those issues too. Yeah. I think, you know, there's, it's, it's not just the realm of like hard hitting politics news. Like there's like really important beauty and fashion news. There's really important, you know, 
food news and and food industry news and um yeah i think somebody's been put it in the buckets of just like these are not news there's something else <laughs> when they're all part of what makes a community whole yeah, yeah you don't have to assign them some hierarchical value either um yeah which yeah. is Go ahead. Sorry, Brooke. Sorry. No, I, I, I hate to interrupt. I just, um, I, I think that there is also so much overlap. Yeah. So, you know, I, I sort of along the lines of what Alex was saying, I think um, a good food journalist is a beat reporter. And I, I think food stories are inherently political. Um, part mm -hmm. of the reason I chose this beat is that I think it's um, the only art form that physically and quite literally keeps people alive. And also it's a way to lure people into reading a policy story, to get people to care about agriculture and the environment. And um, good food stories are political, good food stories are about the community at large. So I, I think, I remember working in newspapers where there was very much like, well, the hard news is what's important. And then, you know, we'll, we'll fit in, maybe we'll consider one lifestyle story for A1 once a quarter, you know? And I think that, what it feels exciting is that people are more aware of this. I think we're all kind of in the same boat of agreeing on this perspective. And I think that feels fairly new compared to the perspective on it, even just like 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, I want to, I'm trying to think of a way to, to say this. So it comes out correctly. I guess I'm curious if you all ever felt the experience where, you know, we talked about, I often felt underestimated as a woman in journalism, but sometimes I felt like that could be a little bit of my superpower. <laughs> you know, I think of this one, especially when it came to interviews, right? Like I felt like people, when I would come in for a fashion interview, it, it, it feels so non-threatening that it could lead to these really, you know, interesting conversations. And, and one that comes to mind is, you know, I interviewed Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall, which is a show that really defined probably too much of my sense of humor. And we were talking about fashion, his iconic Buddy Cole character and how the looks came to life. And that talk about fashion let us segue into this really emotional conversation about him, you know, being an out queer man on television in the 80s and 90s at the height of the AIDS epidemic and how angry it made him and the, what he went through. And when I hung up and, you know, that interview did, did very well for us and felt very good to me emotionally, I realized I don't think we would have gotten there if it hadn't started as a fashion conversation. There's this element to not coming in as like, oh, I'm here for hard news, you know, thump, thump, thump. But, but something in that let people trust me more. And I, so many interviews would get this stuff or people crying and these things I didn't expect that I always felt like, there was a tiny bit of me that was like, okay, great. Go ahead and underestimate me a little bit or feel like this is a puff interview. And then these brilliant things would come out of it. I'm not saying that's what he did, but you know, that it, it was that feeling. Um, yeah, it was, it, it, it's this interesting, like other element to it. Am I, am I alone? Does anybody else feel that way? I, I can chime in. I a hundred percent have relied a lot on my um, ability to look young and naive and um, inexperienced in getting into doors and asking people hard questions. 
and taking people kind of off guard and, and not by not in the same nest, same way of kind of like leading them in with a, um, an issue that's a little like maybe softer in some way or um, not threatening, but by just the way I present. And that's something um, that I, I thought about a lot um, and, and I've used in, in, you know, in my favor a lot and the way I even like dress when I'm going to, to interview um, you know, police chief or when I'm going to, to meet um, with folks who are higher up. And um, it's tricky though, because it's something I've thought about, but it's also something like it's something I use for my benefit, but something I've always thought about people who don't have um, that privilege, people who, um, you know, don't present as a, you know, petite, young looking woman, you know, um, and that it's not always something that folks can lean on. And I'm not saying that, you know, this isn't like, I'm not a male apologist right now, um, but people who, uh, you know, gender non-binary folks who um, people put different assumptions on them when they're coming to, to interview them. And um, so it's something that I've taken advantage of, but also been aware um, of the privilege that, that comes with it. A hundred percent. Like I'd rather people didn't underestimate me to begin with, but <laughs> if they're going to, then I feel like, all right, then if this is, you know, um, Fiona, I saw you nodding a lot. Yeah. I, it's such a thorny subject for me in so many ways. So I don't even know if I can be clear and articulate on it because like you, I'd really just rather not be underestimated. <laughs> I'd rather none of us would be underestimated ever. Um, and I do think there were times when news organizations also sort of used me for that reason back mm. a long time ago. <laughs> but, um, you know, and that's not a comfortable feeling, you know, to be like, oh, you know what, we'll send in, we'll send in the young ingenue reporter um, and, you know, she'll wear a cute skirt and she'll charm him and disarm him. Like, that's not a comfortable position to be in. And so I, I feel like it's true. I mean... To be honest, I have to hand on heart um, admit that the one thing I use more than anything now is my Irish accent to <laughs> open doors because I feel like some and that again that's a privilege and that's you know to do with sort of why this uh, people accept that accent over another accent is a whole other <laughs> um, conversation. But um, yeah, it has it has made me deeply uncomfortable. It has definitely supposedly worked to my advantage in the past, you know, and has gotten me on stories that maybe I wouldn't have been on. Um, they did not always end well. I, you know, I've been sexually harassed as a reporter, as I'm sure many of you have. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, yeah, I, it's a double-edged sword for me. I feel like I completely understand that people use that. And I, you know, we all try and charm people into telling us things sometimes as part of our job, but, but man, I feel really gross about the way the whole thing is set up, to be honest. Yeah, it is a, it's a, it's a tricky thing because I just feel like, well, and for me, I was thinking more of it just coming again from being a lifestyle reporter oh, yeah. and that, that the underestimation mainly came from that, which then you start going through your layers of identity of being like, oh, wait, is somebody judging me for this? Or, or wait, are they judging me for that? And, you know, and we don't even aren't always even aware how we're perceived by everybody else. 
um, because then our heads would explode. Yeah. I mean, it's true that like, I, I think that people think when they think they're being interviewed for, you know, a lifestyle or a lifestyle publication, they're like, I'm not going to get asked any hard questions. That's not what this is for. And so you can use that to kind of um, maybe open things up a little more than you might if you went in with a much clearer mandate. Um, So yeah, I guess for that, totally true. I just undid my last answer. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's all the things. It's all the things. Brooke, what do you think? Uh, I feel such complicated feelings about all of this. Um, You know, from the perspective of gender identity, um, again, so I'm a a queer woman, but I am incredibly straight passing. I have a male partner who I've been in a long-term relationship with for a long time. Um, Physically, I, I present fairly straight and femme. Um, and when I, uh, used to cover agriculture in a more conservative part of the state, um, people gave themselves permission to be very candid with me, including about, um, their perspectives on queer people. And I think that again, like I could use the fact that people were underestimating me for my age and how I looked to my advantage to report those stories, but there is a very um, complicated feeling that comes from feeling like you are using a part of your identity, like you're almost like failing a part of your identity Mm -hmm. or you're, you're, um, uh, you know, um, yeah, I I, I can't think of the right phrase, but essentially just, turning your back on on this community of people that are important to you especially as Alex mentioned people who cannot necessarily hide it Mm -hmm. and um I think that that I have had very tough evenings after interviews grappling with that um I think that at my best I do feel a certain level of pride in that like I showed them, you know, I was able to get what I needed for this story and show them that I'm actually very competent and very, um, you know, I, I do my job well. But then there are on there are the days where it feels like, man, no one's ever going to really take me seriously. And to even get a modicum of respect, I have to like um, fail certain parts of who I am. So, you know, it, it's tough. I do think that like from the straight like um, beat perspective. Yeah, it's like super easy to go in and be like, I'm a food reporter. I'm gonna talk to you about, you know, uh, onions <laughs> and then get into a point where you're able to talk about culture and identity and politics, which I think again is like crucial in food media. Um, but from a identity perspective, it's so tricky. It's so hard to kind of grapple with. Catherine? Um, you know, I never, I don't think you know, at least consciously that I'm using my gender as kind of a a way to sneak in and have conversations. But I do kind of wonder sometimes, um, you know, if my gender makes it easier for people to talk about certain subjects. Like, for instance, um, you know, if I'm interviewing a chef, you know, uh, I wonder if being a woman makes it easier for them to share stories about their family um, or easier for them to share stories about emotional hardships and the way that that's affected them in their work. Um, and, you know, I think those are really important stories to tell. And the fact that I think telling those things to a woman makes it easier, um, you know, 
works in my favor in terms of the types of stories I like to write. Um, and I do wonder, you know, if I were a man, I wonder if this conversation would have veered into like really obscure cooking techniques or something like that. Um, which, you know, they're both interesting to me. Um, but it, I do wonder, I don't know for sure. I have nothing to compare it against. Um, but I would also say that, you know, the other area where it really helps to be a woman um, is that I think that most of the people I interview uh, for the kinds of restaurants that really appeal to me, um, a lot of them are owned by women and women of color. And I think like being in that position myself makes me more relatable. Um, and so, um, and I don't know, I, I think it's nice to have like that commonality with a lot of people that I interview. Um, and that's kind of a big reason why I seek those stories out. Yeah, that's really interesting that you say that, Catherine, because I I often felt that in my own interviews, like um, sometimes you just like feel a layer of trust with an interview subject that kind of happens, right? It's it's in many ways, it's not different than like going on a date or like hanging out with a new friend where there's just charisma. Like sometimes you're interviewing somebody and you just like have that thing and you're vibing and you trust each other and building up that rapport early on can really help a story. And and I know Fiona and I have talked about this for years as we've shared, 90% of the people we interviewed, we would hang up and go, they're my new best friend and mean it because you're having these intimate conversations often and you're really asking somebody the thing about interviewing a subject is like really trying to get to know them quickly. Um, and in, in the beats I operate in, it's usually because I admire something they are doing um, and, and how quickly you can kind of form the real talk, you know, not just the, the puffery stuff on an about me section, but the real talk, the better the story gets and how much I will never be able to understand is me as a, as a woman is just my personality is me being good at my job. Cause I don't have anything to compare it against. And, and that part is, is interesting and something I have often thought about. Um, and then I've done other things where, you know, I leave an important meeting and uh, with a bunch of other journalists and realize I was the only one wearing red lipstick and then spiral out about my identity on the way home of like, no, I'm allowed to wear my red lipstick or like, no, I looked unprofessional. You know, these are the things that probably most um, male identified reporters perhaps are not having that same convo with themselves on the way home from an interview. Um, but let's, I think that this is a good time to veer into, you know, advice for young journalists, because that is something that I still, uh, almost always, I'm going to say in my years of doing this, and I was also an adjunct professor in the, the fashion department at area for some time. So I've had a lot of students, primarily female students, and then come to me about their tips for getting into the world, for being a fashion editor. Um, you know, what, what advice do you have for people trying to break into this with all of these complicated layers, the, you know, as we've talked to about the identity, the, the um, social media, there's just so many things. Is there either advice you would give to somebody coming in or something you wish you had known when you started? Um, Brooke, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so, the piece of advice I give all young journalists, I, I work with quite a few college students, um, 
but also something that I just think is good advice for humans um, is that a critique is not a condemnation, but take critique and evaluate whether or not it can serve you. So, you know, I think that a lot of times when you receive critique, it can feel like an attack. It doesn't have to. Um, there are critiques that don't come from a place of like, they're not necessarily critiques. They're invective. They're um, someone's pent up rage and frustration. Mm -hmm. And I think the real skill is the ability to discern, is this coming from a place? Can I, can I look in, at this and find what's useful for me as a human being, as a journalist, um, what is going to make me be a more empathetic journalist, a better writer, um, a, you know, a stronger reporter? Um, and what is intended to make me feel like I don't deserve to be here? Um, because being able to sift through that and leave behind the stuff that is telling you, oh, you're not good enough. You're bad at this, you know without any actual guidance in terms of how to get better, that, that is the real skill. Because if you are unable to accept critique, you are gonna stay exactly where you are. You are not going to improve. You are not going to do the people that you're covering uh, the service of being a strong reporter. Um, and you're gonna do your audience a disservice. But if you take all critique, I think it becomes, it becomes a little immobilizing mm -hmm. where you just don't necessarily think that you can do this and you might actually give up before um, people get to see what a great writer you are and, and the stories that you can tell. So I do think that that balance is just crucial for human beings, um, but especially young reporters. As something I used to tell myself before I would open my edits from an editor is in my, my little mantra in my mind was critiques do not mean I'm a bad person. That was the last, right before you hit open, critiques do not mean I'm a bad person. Anyways, feel free, young people of the world, to steal that mental mantra. Alex, what about you? Oh, I just, I, I think about that in um, the framing as a woman as well. I think sometimes as an editor, I'm, I feel like I need to be really apologetic for like critiques that I make um, or because especially if it's another woman too, like I know what it's like to be a young woman and feel like, um, you know, if someone gives me feedback, that's not like glowing, it can you know destroy you. Um, and, and I feel there's some softness that um, sometimes I, I, I inherently want to offer, but have to, um, interrupt myself and, and just kind of give it like it is, um, and expect that, you know, whoever's, whoever I'm editing kind of the reporter, you know, give them, um, the respect of any other reporter who would, um, kind of get it clean. But, I, but I, yeah, I, when you talk about that, I just kind of think about how I try to soften, um, some of my harder critiques when in reality, sometimes they're like really good and really important. And, um, don't need to come with a like, but actually it's also really good, but this one part's really strong, you know, like just say it straight. Um, when it comes to young reporters, um, you know, kind of the, the um, contrast to what Brooke was talking about, when it comes to really positive feedback, something that I have um, started doing, especially in the past couple of years, which have just been 
um, pretty rough for this for this career is um, and it's just been a lot more online than I think um, you know it's ever been uh, is saving saving any positive feedback and putting that like in a word document somewhere like if it's a letter from like a uh, an email from like a you know um, a complete stranger that just says like that they really appreciate what you did or a tweet or whatever um, collect that somewhere to as a reserve to go back to when you've had a day just filled with um you know hateful emails and um and like rage tweets and um rely on that and use that as a resource to to keep going um also i think something that i was a younger journalist i didn't uh, know and i would have loved to know was that you can always reach out to journalists you admire and ask them how they got there and and ask them you know for a buy them coffee and and figure it out. Um, I think I was really I was really intimidated. There was a you know a wall between me and and whatever professional journalism was or journalist was, and getting there just required me working really hard and acting like I knew what I was doing the whole time. And um, and even now, like when people on Twitter kind of put up those threads of like, what's you know great advice for a young journalist, and everyone dumps things, and I always save them because like it's also great advice. Like, I still want that, you know, <laughs> I still um, really am always looking to, to learn and grow. And um, and I always gain so much from those conversations in general. Um, yeah. Um, the idea of a little positivity bank is the sweetest idea. And I don't know why I never did that. And now I want to go start it immediately. I love that. Fee, what about you? Um, what everything they just said, <laughs> which is really articulately put, um, I think on a really granular level, I would say that the one thing I certainly would like every young journalist who comes to our publication, uh, with ideas is to say, read the publication first. <laughs> I know that's like, oh my gosh, so, so, so basic, so true. I swear to God, <laughs> so read the publication first. That's or, and, and I would say that's in a broader level, just like read what's out there, you know, before you come in and be like, I've got this idea for a story that nobody's doing and that, you know, be very sure that nobody's doing it and figure out who, you know, who you're writing for and to and what these, all these different publications look like. Um, and so I think, I know that's like super specific, but it's the one like big bugbear I have, I think. And then also I would say, you know, like learn how to listen. That's huge. Um, and I don't think that I even have that skill down yet, but it's one of the most important skills of a journalist. And then stay really curious, like always be curious. I know this, sorry, I'm rabbiting on now, but like just stay curious, listen well, and read the publication. <laughs> They're the three things for me, I think. Thinking back on the listening well, um, that just reminded me something that I've been working on and have always struggled with is just not feeling uh, dead air and like not just trying to like keep a conversation afloat, like allow the other person to be the one who feels uncomfortable and fills that in. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, the amount because, of times that I've re like listened to myself interviewing somebody and re-listened and realized like, that I missed something so important in the moment because I was so 
The worst is when you interrupt a golden quote, you hear them about to say the most amazing quote and you interrupted it somehow because it was like slow or you just decided to rephrase your question. And I have listened to my own interviews and just been screaming like, Eden, shut up. You're ruining it. Um, So that actually is good advice too, to go back and listen to your interviews because I think you learn a lot about your interviewing skills in that practice, but it is emotionally difficult. So just be ready to go for a walk, or have a tea or something afterwards. Catherine, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I mean, mine generally falls under the umbrella of don't be afraid to put yourself out there, which is really hard for me because I was very shy when I was younger. I still am to a degree. Um, but like Fiona said, like, as long as you do your, um, your homework, you know, look into the publication, workshop your pitch a lot, be really confident in your pitch. But once you've got that nailed down, like send it to everyone, um, who you think would be a good fit for it and follow up on it. Because I think when I was younger, there'd be times where I'd send something I didn't hear back. And I was like, I guess I didn't like it. Um, when, you know, it takes persistence. Um, and you know, a lot of, just assertion that what you're doing is a good story and something that hasn't been done before. Um, I would say also like be really brave about asking people for interviews. I think when I first started that also, that also felt like the scariest thing in the world to me. Um, and I think, you know, I think it's a little bit gendered as well because you're kind of afraid to take up someone's time. Um, and um, you know, now I think I have a lot more confidence in it and can say, Hey, you know, I'm going to write a really cool story about you. It's going to be great. Talk to me. It'll be worth it. Um, I think having a really clear opinion on something, not being able afraid to say when you don't like something or when you really do like something, um, is really big. Um, and it was harder for me when I first started, but it, I mean, especially in food criticism, if you think that everything is is good, then it doesn't make for super interesting writing. I think it has to, there has to be some more um, opinion in it. Um, and the other thing I would say is like, don't be afraid to ask a lot of questions in interviews. Cause I think sometimes when I first started, I was afraid of um, asking certain questions because I didn't want to seem like I didn't know the answer to something. And I think you could even phrase it as something like, you know, can you explain it for our audience who might not know? Um, but, I, but you know, it's, I think sometimes those quotes are the most useful because um, you're just getting at the basics of it. And you don't want to, you know, skip over something because you think you know the answer to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite questions is just like asking people to explain something to me like I'm like a fifth grader, you know? And I think that was something that, for a long time made me feel, you know, really fueled my imposter syndrome was um, writing about, you know, um, issues that I wasn't an expert in (laughs) and asking like dumb questions, but realizing that most readers have those same questions, especially in issues that you're writing about and that your story's not going to make any sense if you don't understand, you know, the process and the context and the pieces. Um, But that was always a scary thing for me, just like, asking what I thought were, you know, dumb questions, um, confidently. Yeah. I think, um, that's such a crucial question. It's in the trifecta for me of questions that I think kind of belong in every interview, which is, you know, explain it to me. Like I'm a third grader. Um, can you give me an example? Um, a lot of times people have big ideas about what they're trying to do. Um, but it means nothing to us because it's still in their head. So whatever kind of tangible example you can get of something, I think is going to be uh, helpful for both your readers and your writing. Um, and what haven't we covered? Like what, 
when I, I almost finished every interview with what, what haven't we talked about that you really want to make sure I know um, just because you'd be surprised what angles you miss because you aren't giving your source just one last second to kind of have the mic. My favorite question, but yeah. I love the ending. What haven't we covered? Cause also then sometimes a subject will out of nowhere, just be like, oh, well, uh, you know, I'm going to be on a reality television show that's starting next week on ABC. And you're like, I'm sorry, what? Like, what? how is this? Or whatever it is. Like, there, there have just been some absolute, you know, uh, uh, explosions of information at the end with that question, which which we just wouldn't have gotten to. And it, and it is funny because I think that starting out or new journalists are afraid to ask that because it sounds... It's an, it sounds like an unprepared question, but to me, it's the most prepared question because it's like, okay, throw anything at me now and we'll see what, what we need to do accordingly. And it really helps, I think, counter some of the biases that we bring to an interview without even realizing sometimes by just saying, okay, what did I not what did I not think of? Like, what did I not ask you? I think I will add one more thing to the list as an editor as well. And I don't know, which is just like what Catherine said about persistence is kind of important. I wish that I could tell every single person that I got back to all excellent pitches immediately, but, um, or all ideas immediately, but when some, but it's really hard (laughs) to be honest. And I feel like when, when a, young journalist is persistent. I admire that because that's the person who's going to also be persistent in their line of questioning or in, you know, in a journalistic content context. And so um, even though it might feel like you're being annoying, which is a feeling I've had where I'm like, oh, I don't want to, you know, keep knocking on the door. If they wanted me, they'd open it. I mean, that's just not always the case. Um, There are other reasons why the door is closed because behind it is a complete chaotic mess half the time. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think people understand. I remember it being like in a very busy time and one time counting up my emails and I got 200 in a day, 200. And it's impossible to get back to everybody in a timely matter or for things, some things to not fell through the cracks because journalism are also, journalists are all sharks. We can't stop swimming or we'll die. We just have to keep going and going and going. Um, and deadlines always are the things that are the shiny object in front of us. Uh, we just have to be, I do want to, uh, briefly talk about, you know, journalism is in such an unusual state right now. We know how many people have, you know, been laid off over the last few years and the change in print, obviously the pandemic, we've just hit, hit after hit after hit. And since I'm currently on a break from journalism, as I work on my new book, I can say without uh, it being a, a self uh, pump up that you all work h- harder than most other professions I've ever seen for not nearly enough money. And it is exhausting and often thankless. So I'm curious if you have anything you could say that you wish people either knew about the state of journalism right now or ways that they can support local journalism get a subscription if you can (laughs) I was waiting for that one get a subscription (laughs) yeah I think you know I understand frustrations related to paywalls um but I think of you know the money that you spend on a Spotify subscription or uh you know all of your various streaming platforms try to take a chunk of those and make it for a publication that you care about 
follow and retweet. And I actually think resharing um, the work of people that you really care about um, is very, very helpful, um, especially original tweets and stuff. You know, if you really like a piece, it, it means a lot. And the other thing that I think people don't think to do is if you send a nice note when you read a story that's meaningful to you, it makes my day if I get stuff like that. You know, I think um, people think, oh, well, they don't care. And I'm sure they get, you know, it you'd be, I promise we're getting way more negative stuff than we're getting positive stuff in our inbox, at least in my experience. God, I hope it's not just my experience. <laughs> it's not. But yeah, I think. Send a nice note. We'll tell our moms about it. It's yeah. very meaningful. <laughs> I'll put it in my Google Doc of nice things. <laughs> yes, you'll make Alex's Google Doc of nice things, which means it'll be it's basically the digital scrapbook of things you'll go back to. I love all of that. My one thing I, I have to weigh in is I think that people don't realize it. it but if you just screenshot and Instagram the article, it is not helpful to the writer or publication because people need to be able to click on it, to read it. It doesn't, people need to have an understanding of the metrics of how that story did so that writer can pitch other similar stories if something's important to you. So if you just screenshot things and share them all around, um, that's not super helpful. Even though I understand you're trying to be helpful, screenshot the title and be like, go read it go read it on the site. That's my, that's my one thing. Anybody else have anything besides get subscriptions? And if you're super, super rich, just give every journalist, you know, some money. It is funny how people like, I do hear a lot of like, why, why don't journalists spend time doing this or that, or why aren't they looking into this story? And I don't know if people know how insanely under-resourced we are right now. I mean, there are stories that I feel constantly merit more investigation. I wish that I could put time into, but I don't have the budget or the people to do that. And so it's not like we're not lazy. I'm telling you, sometimes we're lazy in fairness, but um, for the most part, it's just, there are no resources. And that's partly because people won't pay for them, to be honest. And if you want us to investigate things, you're going to have to pay for your journalism. I mean, yeah, I think the best thing to know is just that journalists are doing the best they can <laughs> every day. And um, there's a limit to what we can extend ourselves to do. Um, that's been a hard thing for me, like being able to put things to the back burner, uh, especially when I have the empathy for an issue or if there's something that needs more you know, lip service or time or investigating. Um, yeah, delegating and prioritizing things, big part of my day. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really underestimated how much work really goes on behind the scenes. I mean, what you see coming, you know, showing up on a writer's profile is such a small percentage of the total work that you're doing. Um, and it makes me sad when people say that they, won't read paywall things. I've never worked for a paywall publication, but it still makes me sad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Final question. Final Jeopardy is since this is going to come out on International Women's Day, I thought it would be a nice time to shout out if you have favorite writers that you would like to share. And that could be journalists. That could be, you know, with an interesting thing, I'll go first to give you a second to think is um, obviously, as a journalist, I read a lot of other journalists, everyone here. I've read all of your stories many, many times, many other great women writers in Portland. 
Um, and you know, the Maggie Habermans and the other like big, big journalists that we, we all read, but over time, I found myself drawn more and more to not journalism writing as well to give my brain a break and really finding inspiration from just other storytellers. And two that I go back to all the time is I love, love, love Sarah Val. She is a wonderful writer, um, wrote like Assassination Vacation and, you know, has been on This American Life. And she's somebody who takes a lot of history and tells it and these funny essays and stories And though it really doesn't have anything to do with fashion, her ability to take a subject that she knows so much about and give you a lot of information in a quick way, but in a fun way is something I really was inspired by. Um, And Sloan Crosley is another one that I just love. It's another essayist who's, who's funny. I just like, I like funny, like a funny gal. That's something, (laughs) that's something my grandma would say. (laughs) Um, Who else? Let me see. What do you think? Does anybody else know off the top of their head? Yeah, totally. Um, so in terms of people in my specific field, other food writers, um, a huge part of the reason um, I looked to eat her uh, while she was there was Helen Rosner, um, who is now with The New Yorker. She's really fantastic. Um, I love um, a lot of my coworkers. I, I, I really, I you know, I... I am a fangirl for Eater.com. So uh, Jaya Saxena um, at Eater.com, I think is a really talented food writer. Um, and I really highly encourage people uh, check out writing if you are unfamiliar. Um, in terms of fiction, I really love Celeste Ng and Jhumpa Lahiri, I would say are, are two of my favorite um, writers within that space. Um, but God, I, you know, I could go on all day. I think there are a lot of really talented ones. Serena Dai, um, Soleil Ho, uh, you know, former Portlander. Um, there are just so many great women specifically in food writing that I'm so, I, I feel like I lucked out by being surrounded by so many great uh, female food writers. Mm, I love that. What what about you, Catherine, since you're in a similar space? Yeah, I mean, I one of my big inspirations as a teenager when I first got interested in food writing was Ruth Reichel. I love all of her food memoirs. Um, and I read her restaurant reviews sometimes when I'm looking for inspiration. Like, uh, they're just like, you know, classic reference points for me a lot of the time. Um, Soleho, I really like how she talks about food and social justice together. Um, Brooke is a great food writer. Um, Andrea Damewood is also a great food writer. We have a really strong women food writer community here in Portland, which is really cool. Um, and uh, another Oregonian, I really liked Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. Um, like the food writing in there is so good. It's a memoir, which is also one of my favorite genres. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's just written so wonderfully about relationships. Yeah, yeah. Alex? Yeah, um, I like, um, and I follow, and I have for a long time, follow journalists who started at Alt Weeklies because I am such a fan of the Alt Weekly model. And there are so many good journalists who began as Alt Weekly reporters, um, like Susan Orlean, who started at, I think, William Alt Week. Um, I uh, really love Pamela Koloff, um, Texas-based reporter, investigative reporter who just does like really beautiful narrative stories about messy issues. Um, you know, uh, Isabel Wilkerson's um, books that have come out in the past couple of years 
uh, Warmth of Other Suns and Cast. I love women writers about kind of class and um, and yeah, disparities within um, with it, whether it's income brackets or race. Um, you know, Barbara Ehrenrich um, and um, yeah, Catherine Boo. I have a lot of a lot of um, long lists of kind of female journalists who've taken um, great messy stories and pulled them into beautiful narratives. And I've really admired that. But yeah, a lot of wonderful journalists in, in Oregon and Portland as well. Um, we're really lucky in the city to have so many, um, so many publications and so many outlets, both online and in print still. Um, and so much inspiration from new voices coming to the city um, and, you know, great freelancers and great uh, opinion writers and yeah, fortunate place to be. Not all cities have this, this many uh, media voices, especially women in media, which is great. Mm. Fiona. Well, I'm just going to sound sycophantic because I think three of four of my favorite writers are in this zoom call right now and i'm really chuffed to be among them um i really feel portland is so well serviced by all the people who are here today and i really appreciate all of you um and then even beyond that on a portland level i obviously really want to shout out all the hardworking portland monthly team because they've done some incredible work um and also yeah people like julia silverman uh and Catherine and Connor. I'm only supposed to shout out women. Sorry. <laughs> the women's dating. Connor trying to edge his way in. He knows. He knows. He ruined it. Sorry. Um, uh, but yeah, so many. And then like, you know, people like Noel Crombie have done amazing things in the Oregonian. Um, There's so many just incredible local female journalists. Um, I think on a more national level, um, I've loved, I mean, I really appreciated the work of Megan Toohey um, on uh, a lot of the work that she did around sexual harassment and some other investigative work that I've really um, admired. Um, I think I've loved, as critics, like I love Emily Nussbaum. Um, yeah. You know, I just think she has a wonderful voice and a generosity in her criticism, which I think is so important. Um, and then I... Uh, yeah, fiction, I could go on forever. I mean, I have, will probably always come back to Toni Morrison all my life and just reread and reread and get something new every time. All right. Um, okay, everyone, thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.